So I'm going to preach today on a topic that I have talked about before, but I'm going to preach it in a way that I have never preached another sermon before in my entire life. And uh, I, 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 I hope you're excited to come to church today. I'm not sure how excited you'll be when you leave church today, but <laughs> together we're going to get through this, I promise you. And by the time next Sunday rolls around, Russell will be back to his peaceful and cheery mood. But today is a day of violence in the spirit anyways. <laughs> hey, would you go ahead? We're going to start today because I'm going to need your help here. Would, would you just start today raising your right hand? We're going to make a commitment today. Today is the Lord's day. Today is the Lord's day. And not be offended. My heart is open. My mind is ready to receive from God in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm warning you, put on your seatbelt. We're going to go someplace today. I think it'll be good, but just you got to stick with me. And here's what I would encourage you to do. You know, one of the spiritual gifts that God has given me is the gift of irritation. And so everywhere I go, I, I irritate people around me. It's one of my gifts. And so my, my goal today is that people on both ends of the political binary would walk away irritated and offended. Okay, so I'm going to try to do that well. I won't do it perfectly, but I'm going to try to do it well. And so if I reach a part of my sermon where you feel like, man, he's really coming after me, just wait. Because in 10 seconds, I'll come after your neighbor. And so together, we're going to make a commitment to be equally offended. And in doing so, hopefully allow the Spirit of God to do some transformative work in our hearts. Let me start off with a couple scriptures. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mark 16 and 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 5 and 14, you are the light of the world, a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on its stand and it gives, watch, light to everyone who is in the house. Proverbs 29 and 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Proverbs 11 and 14, for the lack of guidance, a nation fails, but victory is won through many advisors. Finally, Proverbs 14 and 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Now, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, he didn't mean just only the areas that are without controversy. He actually really meant all the world. It is interesting to me that there are Christians who believe it's okay to influence business, arts, entertainment, media, and Hollywood, but as soon as it comes to government or politics, they act like the cat got their tongue. So let me get this straight. We can minister to Hollywood celebrities. We can influence millionaires in the business realm. We can launch clothing brands, sell books, and achieve cultural fame, but we can't muster one meaningful word about the importance of voting biblical values. So my question for you this morning is this. What's the point of influence if we never use it for stuff that matters? Somebody asked, aren't you concerned about talking like this when you're just about to open up in Seattle? No. This is what makes me excited about going to Seattle. 
The truth of the gospel doesn't change based on the geography of the church. Oh, we're going to stick out like a sore thumb two blocks from the UW, and I couldn't be more excited. Why? Because the time for bright, bold contrast with the world is now. The church has wasted too much time trying to blend in. We are from another place. We carry a higher truth, and we respond to a higher power. Now, before I begin this morning, let me say this. You do not attend a Republican church, and you do not attend a Democrat church. You belong to a Jesus church. And I can promise you this, regardless of what political party you affiliate with, there is something of value in today's sermon that you can receive. And if you allow politics to be the thing that causes you to lose the fruit of the spirit, you aren't advancing the kingdom, you're hurting the bride. Now watch, Christians have a scriptural mandate to teach disciple, lead, shine, and speak the truth in every realm of society, including government. Because when a nation honors the Lord, the Lord will honor a nation. And in doing so, people will rejoice, prosperity will come, and peace will be sustained. The problem is many Christians have bought into the lie that their religious life and their public life aren't meant to interact with one another. Hear me, you have one life. You have one identity. Either you belong to Christ or you don't. There is no such thing as a private faith. If you believe God to be true, if you believe his word to be authoritative, then it compels you towards Christian fidelity and Christian witness in the public square. And this is why Paul writes the church in Rome in the backyard of the superpower of his day and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ. The latest estimates tell us that between 15 to 30 million Christians don't regularly vote in either local or national elections. Think about it. 30 million voices are missing from the public square because we are too busy on Instagram to fill out our ballots. But what about the separation of church and state? Oh, I'm glad you asked. The separation of church and state is a principle that comes from the establishment clause of the First Amendment, which states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I readily affirm this sentiment. I don't want the government creating a state religion or infringing on our right to worship as the tenets of our faith dictate. But here's the problem. Secularists have used this phrase to bludgeon their political enemies anytime you dare bring up your faith. The separation of church and state has nothing to do with Christians being silent or policy being pagan and has everything to do with the government staying the heck out of the church's business. Hear me. If you think politics has no place in the church, you are giving room to the enemy to dominate a sphere of society that will ultimately have some of the greatest impact and influence in our world today. You know, for so long, people have said things like this. Well, don't bring up religion and politics in polite company. You don't wanna offend, you don't wanna create enemies. But where has that sentiment led us as a nation? Now, with that being said, 
Let me tell you the seven types of politicians I am not voting for in this year's election. Put your seatbelts on. I am not voting for politicians who support riots and looting, but believe they have the authority to shut down the church and tell Christians not to worship. I am not voting for politicians who attempt to divide us into classes and categories by virtues of our race, our ethnicity, or our income. I am not voting for politicians who hire private security to guard their mansions, but believe we should defund the police from the inner city. I am not voting for politicians who believe everyone else's border is worth defending except ours. I am not voting for politicians who believe black lives matter except when they are in the womb. I am not voting for politicians who believe the nuclear family is a laboratory for progressive social experimentation. And finally, I am not voting for politicians who believe men can give birth, women can have penises, and gender can be changed. And by the way, doctors who perform gender reassignment surgery on minors shouldn't be celebrated. They should be arrested. So that may leave you with a question. Then, Russell, who are you voting for? Now, understanding that no candidate is perfect, No politician will ever agree with me 100% of the time. I don't even agree with me 100% of the time. Here is who I am voting for. I am voting for the candidate who most closely aligns to my positions on life, marriage, and the family. I am voting for the candidate who is most likely to shrink government, not grow it, because the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. And I am voting for the candidate who is most likely to leave our country in better shape than they found it. I am voting for life because God made it. I am voting for marriage because God ordained it. I am voting for the family because God created it. I am voting for the right to worship because scripture commands it. And I am voting for biological truth because politicians who are that detached from basic foundational realities cannot be trusted to legislate the future for our children. Now hear me, I appreciate low taxes, but that's not my top priority. I wanna see the national debt decrease, but that is not my top priority. I'd like to have a healthcare system that works and isn't astronomically expensive, but that is still not my top priority because not every issue is of equal importance to the Christian. My top priority is the family unit. 
any politician or piece of legislation that seeks to do violence against families is a person or a policy I simply cannot support. The government isn't in charge of your children, you are. The government is not in charge of your private medical decisions, you are. And the government does not endow you with unalienable rights, God did. And the government exists expressly to protect those God-given unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Listen, friend, as the family goes, so goes the nation. As the church goes, so goes the nation. So I am giving my life to building both because ultimately what impacts the nation most is not what happens in the White House. It is what happens in your house. And if we don't start voting like our future depends on it, we may not have a future at all. Voting is the basic bare minimum responsibility of every believer who is of legal age. And if you think that this is some stump speech for a certain political party, you are dead wrong. This is a prophetic appeal to the people of God. Be deeply formed by this book. Allow it to shape how you vote, who you support, and what positions you take. No, I am not voting my values. I am voting these values because my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. See, when Trump became president, I had people leave the church because I dared pray for him on stage. When Biden became president, I had people leave the church because I dared to pray for him on stage. Listen, I am not asking for permission from the Democrats or the Republicans to have a move of God in the Northwest. And I will continue to pray for all of those who are in authority, regardless of what party they are in, because that is part of my God-given responsibility. I think that there is a healthy patriotism, which should be natural and normal amongst Christians. But beware the unhealthy idolatry that comes when we attach spiritual aspirations to political personalities. And if you don't believe the Bible or the church should impact the way that you see the world or interact in the public square, you aren't half the Christian you think you are. No, Jesus is not on the ballot, but the conscience of the nation is. So we better vote accordingly. See, I am a Christian first, and I am an American second. My first identity is what most impacts my second identity. I believe the nation is stronger, better, and more free when we honor the principles and priorities of Scripture. And I believe that if we ever forget we are one nation under God, we will be one nation gone under. There is a reason the Cuban dissident risks their life on a homemade raft, braving the open ocean in a desperate attempt to wash up on Florida's shore. There is a reason the Mexican mom crosses the scorching desert with infant in hand in a dangerous and often perilous attempt to reach the safety of the United States. There is a reason my wife's family fled to this country during the Balkan War in the year 2000. And that reason is that America still shines as a beacon of hope for the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses who yearn for a chance at the freedom that this country represents. And friends, 
friend. We ought to get down on our knees and thank God on a daily basis that America is still a place people are trying to break into and not out of. Now, I know it's popular to hate our country today, but that is about the dumbest position you could ever take. If you wanna hate the most free, most prosperous, most equitable experiment in self-governance to ever exist in all of recorded history, be my guest. But it does not make you cool. It makes you an ill-informed, self-entitled child who frankly doesn't deserve the freedoms you abuse to make such claims. I am not ashamed to pray for this country. I am not ashamed to love this country and support this country. Is America perfect? Far from it. But as nations go, it's the best thing afloat. And isn't it funny how the people who always threaten to move away if an election doesn't go their way always seem to stick around just so that they can complain about something else? You can leave if you want, but I'm gonna stay and fight. <laughs> now, I often get asked, do you believe that America is a Christian nation? And, and, and that, 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 that is hard for me to answer that question because I am not sure what is actually being asked. Was America founded on Christian principles? Yes. Was our entire legal system built off of Christian ideals? Yes. Does our understanding of natural rights come from the pages of scripture? Yes. Is the dominant religious preference in the West still Christianity? Yes. Does that mean that we should by force institute theocratic rule and eliminate religious freedom by forcing people to convert? Of course not. But if you were to take your cues from mainstream media today, you would be convinced that every Christian who speaks to matters of public policy wants us to return to the dark ages and reinstitute the crusades. Listen, the media is not going to silence us as a church and they do not get to define the parameters for how we engage. Somebody told me, we're gonna report you to the IRS if you talk about politics. Good, they know where to find me. I am not abdicating my God-ordained responsibility because it upsets people who believe there are 72 genders. See, the church functions as the prophetic conscience of the nation. And when the church loses her voice, the world loses her mind. We are part of the national framework, but we are distinct at the same time. We do not champion parties as much as we champion ideas, and some ideas are better than others. And if that makes me a Christian nationalist, then so be it. I could care less what the mainstream media labels us. We are not living for their approval and their affirmation means less than nothing to the church of Jesus Christ. See, the world thinks they can get the church to shut up by calling us mean names. I've been called racist, but I lead the most diverse church in the region. I've been called anti-immigrant, but I'm married to one. Somebody put on Google that I'm a multimillionaire. I hope it was prophetic. <laughs> but here's the reality. We cannot and will not be bullied into staying silent because the cost of being cowardly is simply too 
high. And what do you do when you feel as if there are no good choices? At least for me, I vote for the person closest to my values and then I pray like my future depends on it. There seems to be two false positions that a lot of Christians take. Number one, it doesn't matter how rotten someone's character is as long as they vote the way I want. Number two, it doesn't matter how rotten someone's voting record is as long as they appear virtuous on the outside. And what if both positions are wrong? What if character does matter? And ideally, our elected officials should serve as role models for our children. And what if voting records are of the utmost importance? And it does not matter how virtuous someone appears if they support an antichrist agenda. See, voting isn't a valentine. It's a chess move. It's an act of strategy related to the type of world I want my kids to inherit. Like many of you, I often find myself not impressed with the choices that are on the ballot, but that won't keep me from engaging. Even if my candidate won't hit a home run for my values, can they at least get on base? Can they move the ball forward? Can they advance my cause? If the answer is yes, even if I don't get everything that I want, I'm gonna make a strategic move in the direction of the agenda I most support. Now let me give you some text. Daniel was a political person. Joseph was a political person. Ezra was a political person. Deborah was a political person, but maybe my most favorite and overlooked political figure in all of scripture is a woman named Queen Esther, who was married to the king of the Persian empire, an absolutely insane man named Xerxes. The story of Esther happens 500 years before the birth of Christ. The Persian empire dominates the known world and they have a wild king surrounded by demonic advisors who plan for the destruction of the Jewish people. Isn't it interesting that this is a repeated theme all throughout scripture and world history, the destruction of the unborn and the destruction of the Jewish people. Remember friend, the enemy hates anything that bears the image of the almighty. The Jewish people are a nation without a home. They are ruled by the Persian Empire. They are adrift in a governmental system that doesn't respect their religion or even recognize their right to personhood. And Esther is a Jew, yet no one knows it. And she happens to be married to the leader of that empire, a man named Xerxes. Don't tell me that revival is dependent on getting the right guy or right gal in office. Don't attach your emotional or spiritual outcomes to the every two year cycle of political realities in the United States. No, you got a responsibility to vote. Yeah, you got a responsibility to be a voice in the public square of civic engagement. But I refuse to allow the world system to steal my joy because ultimately I trust in a God who says this, the heart of the king is like water in my hands. I turn them in whatever direction I wish. 
See, Esther's uncle Mordecai catches wind that a demonic plot is being hatched by a man named Haman that will result in the extermination of the Jewish people. And he goes to Esther and says this, recognize the influence you have to turn the nation towards Yahweh. Listen, if I could boil down my entire sermon into one sentence, it would be that. My plea to you today as a pastor is this, recognize the influence you have to turn the nation towards Yahweh. Now watch what the scripture says in verse one of Esther four. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning amongst the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. I like what Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds the crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Listen, we will not escape this cultural moment. We have seen how quickly the government moved to eradicate the religious liberty of the church. Trust me, none of us make it out of this unscarred. So either we hang together or we will be hung separately. Here's what I found. Some Christians subscribe to a defeated escapist theology, thinking if they just say nothing, be nothing, do nothing, stand for nothing, maybe they will avoid being canceled or disliked by the culture. Hear me very carefully. Until you break your dependence on culture's approval, you will constantly be asking Babylon's permission to live out your Christian faith. I can't escape the wrath of culture, but here's the good news. The Northwest can't escape the goodness of God. This great task is worth it. This great field is worth it. This great pursuit is worth it. And friend, what a time to be alive. In the church, we need the wisdom of Mordecai's to be married to the boldness of Esther's. The young and old coming together for strategic kingdom purposes. See, Mordecai was playing chess, but Haman was playing checkers. Mordecai saw a divine opportunity while the nation only saw an uncertain future. See, wisdom asks the question, but boldness answers the question. And when you have both operating in a church, the kingdom becomes unstoppable. And in verse 14, watch what Mordecai says to Esther. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love this. If you remain silent, God will cause victory to spring up from another source, but you and your father's house won't get to be a part of this story. God will send every dollar we need to transform the region. God is gonna raise up every volunteer we need to reach the Northwest. 
God is going to release every miracle we need for Snohomish, Seattle, and beyond. Remaining silent doesn't stop God. It stops you. And watch how Mordecai charges Esther in this moment. Could it be? Is it possible? Have you considered that God has raised you up in this season for this exact reason and at this exact time? See, some of you feel like you're stuck in the Persian Empire living here in the Northwest. But could it be that God saw fit to preserve for himself a people in the Northwest? Could it be that all your plans just happened to fall through and you ended up in little old Snohomish? Could it be that somehow in the infinite and sovereign wisdom of God, he has you right where he wants you, right when he wants you, and has given you an invitation to go before the king and plead for a people to be spared? Verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, gather all the Jews who are present and fast for me. Don't eat, don't drink for three days or three nights. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What's the worst that could happen? We fail, oh well. People get ticked off, too late. I love Esther's response. If I die, I die but I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees while the Persian empire seeks to destroy my people. Listen, if Seattle kills us, we still win. If the culture cancels us, we still win. I have read the end of the book. This works out for our benefit. So let us with great courage advance the cause of Christ and whatever may come will come, but the people of God and the kingdom of God will remain unshaken. Could it be that God has so sovereignly put you in this church for such a time as this? Could it be that God has orchestrated the events of humanity to lift up a bride that was sleeping, but now she's awake? Could it be that his ways are not our ways? His thoughts are high above and what has looked like chaos to the world is actually strategy from God. Could it be that this is an opportunity for the church to regain her prophetic voice to turn the nation back to Yahweh? Could it be? I was in Scottsdale, Arizona last week and meeting with some different national leaders and pastors. And in the middle of my trip, I, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and he said, Russell, you're asking too small. And I responded to the Lord like this, Seattle is too small? To try to get that campus off the ground, it's been like a two year panic attack. <laughs> and the Lord took me to, to Psalms 2. And the Lord rebuked me and he said, I didn't ask you to ask for regions. I invited you to ask for nations. By the time that this sermon ends at the 1030 service, we'll have folks around the world who have watched it 
We'll release sermon clips this week. I promise you it's gonna be chaotic for the marketing team. Can't wait for all the emails and phone calls. But I'm just convinced that the time for cowardice has passed and the time for courage is here. Why? Because the fate of the nation hangs in the balance. I've got an earthly responsibility to engage with civic institutions. I've got a heavenly responsibility to engage in the throne room of Jesus and to plead for his mercy and his blood to forgive our sin and to heal our land. It's not either or, it's both and. See, I am a citizen of heaven, but I am an ambassador on earth. I am seated in heavenly places, but I've been given keys to the kingdom in earthly places. And so for us, we operate as believers who are living in two simultaneous realities at the exact same time. And I believe that God is so positioning this church and this community of believers, not just for regional transformation, but to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I am calling the nation back to Yahweh. I am calling the nation back to righteousness. I am calling our nation back into right relationship with the King who was not voted in and will not be voted out. I am calling people to put their allegiance, not in the elephant, nor in the donkey, but in the wounded lamb who holds the universe together with his spoken word. It's not just Snohomish. It's not just Seattle. It's not just the Northwest. It's not just the West Coast. No, from my house to the White House, Jesus is Lord. And we're calling the nation back to Him. Come on, would you stand to your feet and give God a great shout of praise? Now here's how I wanna pray for you this morning. In Acts 4, two chapters following the outpouring of Pentecost in Acts 2, the Bible says the disciples were gathered again. The Holy Spirit literally shook the room in which they were gathered and they were filled with all boldness and courage. And I'm praying today for a baptism of boldness and courage on people in this church. No, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And my prayer for you today is that the Spirit of God would take out any words that were from me and only leave words that were from Him. My hope is not to inspire a political movement, but a spiritual movement where people return to their first love. Our nation is at a critical turning point in its destiny. And if the church of Jesus can't find their voice now, we lose the next generation to whatever heresy is most popular in our culture. And so we're gonna call the nation. But can I tell you, revival doesn't start in the White House, it starts in yours. Repentance doesn't start in the halls of government, it starts in the hallways of the church. And we are a people who are returning in spirit and in deed to our maker, confessing our entire dependence on him. Can God change a city in a day? Just ask Nineveh. 
Can God rescue a nation in a moment? Just ask Esther. Can God sovereignly turn the hearts of kings and rulers to give favor to the people of God? Just ask Cyrus. This is our moment to call on the Lord in our time of need and see him help in supernatural ways. It is revival or we die and I choose revival. Come on, let's pray. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray for a baptism of courage and boldness on the public witness of believers all across this region. You will not stay silent. You will not live in the cave. You will not lurk in the shadows. You will be everything that God has asked you to be. God, I pray that you would restore righteousness to this nation, but you would start with the church. God, that you would restore justice to this nation, but that you would start in the church. God, I pray for a bride that has been wounded to come into healing and come alive more than she has ever been before. God, we respond to the call of the, of the generations. Could it be that we have been positioned for such a time as this? And so we respond with a yes and amen in our heart. And we say, let it be done unto us according to your word. God, we're asking for a nation, not just a region. I'm asking for a generation, not just a high school. God, I'm asking that from the West Coast to the East Coast, you would pour out the Holy Ghost. God, I pray that you would turn America back to you and that we would see revival and reformation sweep the streets until the nation resonates with glory. And we say, God, we will take the mantle. We will carry the baton. Here am I. Send me. We respond to you today. We respond to you today. Now God, endue us with power from on high to be everything that you have asked us to be. May we take our earthly responsibility seriously, but may we never lose sight of our heavenly responsibility that keeps our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, we love you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said amen. amen. And amen. Friend, if you're here today. And